following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Hey everybody, I'm Pastor Vince. Uh, I do a lot of the Bible teaching here at Love City Church, so uh, that's what I'm here to do. I'm excited to get to do that with you uh, tonight. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. Uh, if you were with us last week, we were in Revelation, so we're just going all the way to the other end. Genesis, uh, first book of the Bible, and uh, we're actually starting a new series today. It's titled, What is God Doing? And this question, it's a summary of many questions that tend to arise in the minds and hearts of mankind when we face suffering and trials in this life. Uh, Questions like, why is this happening? Or, where is God in all of this? Uh, If God is all-powerful and and loving, then how can this happen? And there is a principle that it's going to be repetitive throughout this series. It has to do with the posture with which we ask these kind of questions. Uh, In Job chapter 7, after losing everything, Job asks this. He says, Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? And that's the way some people, they have a limited scope and view of how to perceive trouble is that, well, then... God has actively targeted them, and that's why something's going on. Well, that's definitely not always the case. God, that was Job 7, where Job asked the question. In Job 38, (laughs) takes a minute, God answers. Here's God's answer to Job's question. You remember his question? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I'm a burden to myself? Basically, he's talking about why, why has all this happened? Why is all this going on. What are you doing? Here's God's answer to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. Woo. Okay. This is God in the whirlwind getting sassy. Okay. Which he can do because he's God. He goes on. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Ooh, goodness. Okay. There have been many who have said something like, hey, it's okay to bring your questions to God. He isn't afraid of them. And, and friends, hear me. That, that is true. And the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he is patient and kind. However, We should not think that it is proper or profitable to come at him as if he is anything less than the sovereign ruler and creator of all that exists. The key here in understanding the posture with which we ask questions, it comes down to faith and trust. We we have to ask ourselves, has God shown us enough of his goodness and power to know that he is worthy of our trust? That's a good question. 
if we do not trust him and we encounter struggle and difficulties in this life, the posture of our hearts and the tone of our voice will have us asking this question. What is God doing? But if we are convinced of his power and his goodness, then the posture of our hearts and the tone of our voice will have us asking a very different question. What is God doing? Now, friend, you might have said, well, that's the same question, but it absolutely is not. One asks what God is doing in accusation of his character. The other asks what God is doing in amazement at his promises. It's a big difference. And it's our heart posture. And whether or not we're walking in faith and trusting him that makes the difference in how we ask those questions. And it matters. I think we can understand that Job, perhaps, was convinced of God's power through creation. That's pretty obvious. You look around, you see the diversity of life and and the beauty of creation. It's easy to, to get a glimpse of God's power, but he may have been struggling to be sure about God's goodness. But for us, friends, there there remains no excuse. For we have not only had the privilege of observing his great power through all that has been made, but also his infinite goodness through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Savior King. We have seen all we should need to be able to see, all we should have to see, to know that God is both infinitely powerful and infinitely good. Throughout this series, we're going to see how prominent this principle is in the scriptures. Because when we are struggling in the midst of trials to see how God is working, we can rehearse in our hearts the story of redemption. And we can remind ourselves that our ancestors in the faith were faced with many difficult circumstances. And, and, and though they were often unable from their vantage point to be able to see God's good purposes, it wasn't because he didn't have them. He always does. Now, I ask you to go to the book of Genesis just quickly so we all have our bearings. The book of Genesis is thought by many to have three major parts. So you've got creation, the fall of man, you've got the flood and the tower of Babel. That's like the first 11 chapters, okay? Then it turns, the book turns its gaze towards the three major patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then towards the end, around chapter 37, you get to the story of Joseph, okay? So today, we're going to focus on Joseph's life as we look for this principle that we've discussed already. And like I said, throughout this series, we're going to be kind of aiming at the same point, but what I want to do is take you through the scriptures, God's story of redemption, uh, and, and see over and over and over again this principle lay, play out. Because what I'm hoping is that these, these stories and us looking at it through this lens will be so seared into our hearts and minds that as we're actually navigating the difficulty of life, as we're navigating the situation we're in now and difficult situations to come, we're able to draw strength and encouragement and have a strong foundation to stand on, seeing that God has made plain in what he has chosen to tell us about 
the history of redemption through his word, that we can, we can stand on these principles, that we can trust his goodness and his power in all things, okay? Uh, we're going to focus on Joseph's life, and, and we're going to look for this principle. So let's read together Genesis chapter 50. We're going to read verses 15 through 21 together, okay? Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the verses here available for you. Um, but if you have something with you, follow along with us and, and put your eyes on these words with us, okay? When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a messenger to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin. For they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Did you hear that? For am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And the last four verses of Genesis 50 record the death of Joseph. And then we move on into Exodus in the time of Moses. Uh, here, in these few verses in Genesis, we see the principle plain as day that we're talking about. Uh, specifically when Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for the good for good and the preserving of, of many lives. And, and and Joseph says plainly, am I in God's place? Because only God sh sh really knows the answer to certain questions. Um, we have to stick with what we can know many times. Uh, so what I'm going to do is give you a quick summary of the backstory leading up to this and, and then lay out for you in detail the story recorded between Genesis 37 and, and 50. Uh, again, I want to take you through as many examples as we can in this sermon series, of seeing that this principle plays out not in kind of one-off, well, it, it went good that time type situation, but the fact that consistently God works in this way with his people over and over and over and over again. It's very consistent. Uh, I know that many people have read Genesis, right? Most people, when they start reading the Bible through in January and they're really motivated, they, they at least make it through Genesis. <laughs> a lot of times through Exodus too. Uh, but then it starts to get a little choppy. Uh, but, but, so I know, uh, me giving you this, this rundown, <clears throat> you know, we've got to keep in mind, not everybody has maybe read through all of Genesis, but even if you have, and even if you have multiple times, what we're working at here in this series is not having a vague recollection of the stories um, because having a vague recollection of the stories is, is not like knowing it to the degree that it's written on your heart and it, and it actually affects the way you approach God and the way you navigate trials in this life. And so looking at it through this lens, looking at it from this perspective, uh, I'm asking you not to disengage as you hear this rundown or, or hear the more detailed, I'm going to kind of go real fast from Genesis 1 to 37, and 37 to 50, we're going to slow down and get real detailed. 
this that we're about to talk about, this is the history of all who belong to Jesus by faith, and we need to embrace it as such. We've said that in the past. Man, this is our history. Um, it's not just you know, those who are of eth- ethnically related to Israel. Uh, we are now in this by faith, man. That's the whole point. Jesus came so that Jews and Gentiles could come and be in the family of God. And so this is our history if we belong to Jesus. All right? Uh, amen. Okay, so to, to get up to Genesis 37, we got, starting in Genesis 1, God creates the world. Everything's perfect. Tells Adam and Eve, they got one restriction, don't eat of that fruit. Satan comes along, convinces them basically that God's keeping some good thing from them, uh, questions what God said, are, are you really going to die? You know, plants this seed of doubt in, in their mind that um, really what God's doing is you know, does he really love you? Is he, is he really that good if he's holding this good thing from you? Doesn't the fruit look good? So they buy the lie. Uh, Genesis 3, we have what's commonly known as the fall. So that's where God comes and there's, there's judgment. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. Uh, curses pronounced upon the, the serpent. Uh, even in the midst of that, in the midst of the pain and betrayal, God is still so good to foreshadow even in that moment that there was a seed of the woman coming that's going to crush the head of the serpent has us already looking forward to Jesus. Praise God. Uh, not too long after that, uh, mankind just continues in their foolishness. Uh, you got the flood and Noah and, and all of that. You know, go check out Genesis 6 if you're not familiar. I'm, I'm, I'm not here for that story. I'm just giving you the quick timeline. Uh, Noah and his family get off the boat. doesn't take too long. Mankind's foolish again. They decide we're going to build this tower up to heaven, show how awesome we are. God confuses the language. Uh, of the people so that they can't accomplish their goal, and uh, mankind starts to spread out. And then the lens turns in Genesis around chapter 12 to Abraham. Uh, God calls Abraham, tells him he's going to give him a son, uh, even in his old age. That happens. Um, Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. Okay, Isaac marries Rebekah and has two sons, Jacob and Esau. They're twins. Uh, if you remember, Esau came out first, but Jacob, his name means supplanter. He was he was tricky, ended up stealing his brother's blessing, uh, and, and becomes really the, the patriarch that everyone ends up remembering, okay? Esau kind of takes off uh, in shame. They, they come back later and, and reconcile, and that's great. But uh, So Jacob then, uh, beginning of the year, we took a real close look at him wrestling with God on the banks of the Jabbok River, and uh, God changing his name to Israel, and that's that's where we're at now in, in the story. So Israel had 12 sons. Israel, Jacob, they're the same guy. He had 12 sons. Uh, most of his sons came from his wife, Leah. Jacob had worked uh, seven years for his uncle to marry Rachel. Uh, and then his uncle tricked him and he married Leah. Then he worked seven more years for Rachel. That's a real romance story, man. Twilight ain't got anything on that. Go check that out in Genesis later if you uh, want to feel bubbly on the inside. But uh, <clears throat> somebody laughed in here and distracted me. Isn't that awesome? Now, now I don't know where I'm at in this entire Genesis breakdown I'm trying to give you. No, I got it. I'm back. All right, so he married, most of the sons were from Leah. Rachel, he had one son with Rachel. That was Joseph. So now we're to Joseph, okay? So uh, Israel was, was not a great dad in this, that he played favorites, okay? So he had more affection for Rachel, had more affection for his son Joseph than the other sons, okay? That you'll remember 
uh, if you're familiar with Genesis, that he had a, a very colorful coat that kind of was this, this bright, vivid statement of his preference of Joseph. To make matters worse, around chapter 37, Joseph starts to have dreams, okay? And he's young, doesn't have enough sense to keep his mouth shut, so he starts telling his brothers and his family he's having these dreams where all the rest of the family are bowing down to him. And so brothers are already not thrilled with the favoritism, and then this guy, you know, he's having dreams about everyone bowing down to him. That does not... uh, endear them to him. That does not conjure a bunch of affection for him. Uh, it makes it a tense relationship, <laughs> to, say it, uh, to say it lightly, because we see how tense it is as it moves forward. So all the boys are out one day, and they decide, you know what, let's get rid of Joseph. So they take his coat, they dip that in blood, tear it up to make it look like an animal attacked him, they throw their brother in a pit, uh, Go back and tell their father he was attacked by an animal and he's dead. There was some debate. They were just going to go ahead and kill him, but some of the brothers got a conscience real quick, thankfully, and uh, pulled him up out of the pit and sold him into, sold their brother into slavery for some pieces of silver. So he's then in this slave caravan. They take him to Egypt, and uh, he is sold in Egypt to a, an Egyptian official named Potiphar. And at that point, we see uh, Joseph, the Bible's very plain, it's explicit about it, that God's hand of favor was upon Joseph to the degree that it didn't take long. Potiphar set Joseph over everything in the house. He's like the head guy uh, and entrusts everything to him. Uh, The the scriptures say specifically that Joseph was attractive in appearance. And so uh, Joseph's a hunk, all right? And apparently Potiphar's wife thought so too. So she starts hitting on him. And uh, you get the sense as you read it that it's not one time or two times, that daily for a long time she's making this suggestion that they come lie with me. Uh, And she doesn't just mean cuddle in case you're not clear, okay? Uh, Joseph's answer is, hold on, what are you talking about? Like, he calls Potiphar his master. My master's entrusted everything in the house to me. I'm, I'm, I'm... in charge of all of this, the only thing he's asked me not to touch is you, his wife. Why would I sin against him and against God? I'm not doing that. And so finally one day, Joseph uh, isn't wise about the situation. He doesn't have situational awareness, and he's in the house doing his stuff, and Potiphar's wife is in there, and no, there's no other servants. There's no witnesses. So she grabs a hold of him and says, come lie with me. And uh, in, in one of my, this is one of my favorite Bible scenes because I just ima- I imagine Joseph, you know, it says he, he sheds off his, his outer garment to get away from her. I just imagine him like doing this juke move where he drops up and just, it says he takes off and runs outside. Like, great move, man. I'm, I'm with you. I mean, some people need to get some of that Joseph juke up in them when it comes to getting out of sin, uh, you know, tempt- tempting situations and, and things like that. Uh, read Genesis and, and ask, you know, ask God to give you some of that, some of that Joseph juice so you can juke. Some of those situations you'd be putting yourself in, right? Right. I'm assuming most of you said amen right there. If you didn't, that's a great spot. Okay. So Joseph runs outside. Uh, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And so Potiphar grabs his garment, holds on to it. It sounds like she just sits on the bed and pouts all day and uh, waits for her husband to come home. You know, first she tells the servant, she, she screams, kind of fake screams. Oh, Joseph tried to attack me. And then uh, tells her husband the same thing. And her husband, you know, believes her. So he hauls Joseph off to jail for a crime he didn't commit, sticks him in prison, okay? 
Joseph's in prison. I mean, it doesn't take two sentences of the scriptures and Joseph's already running the jail. God's hand of favor is on him again. The head jailer puts him in charge of everything. And then what happens after not too long is uh, two of Pharaoh's servants, um, guys that are close to him, his cupbearer and his baker, they're brought into the prison. They ticked off Pharaoh, okay? And while they're there, they both have dreams that trouble them. And uh, they're kind of talking about that. They, they're, they're, they feel angst because they feel like the dreams have meaning, but they can't interpret them, don't know anybody that can. And Joseph says, well, don't dreams belong to the Lord? Let me hear it. And so uh, the cupbearer goes first, and his dream is that there's, uh, there's a vine, and, and really good grapes come off of that vine, and uh, there's three branches, and, and so he squeezes the grapes and into Pharaoh's cup, and Daniel says, okay, yep. In three days, you're going to be restored to your place. You'll be the cupbearer again. It's going to go good for you. And then, uh, and then the baker's like, oh, sweet. He, he, got a, <laughs> he got a good dream reading. Here's my dream. Uh, I had this basket of uh, baked goods for Pharaoh, and it's on my head. And, and there's birds coming, and they're eating some of the, the bread and stuff. And uh, Joseph's like, hey, in three days, Pharaoh's going to take your head up off of you and hang you. Yikes. Okay. So not as great of news. And it happened exactly as he said. When he talked to the cupbearer, when he interpreted the cupbearer's dream, though, he said, don't forget me. Uh, tell Pharaoh about my plight. I'm here for something I didn't do. Uh, I'm innocent. And the cupbearer must have got real excited about being back in Pharaoh's presence and totally forgot about Joseph. And so the Bible says it's like two more years. He's down there serving a sentence in, in prison, for something he didn't even do. It's a, that's a pretty big bummer. Eventually, though, Pharaoh has a dream. That's where things start to get interesting. I mean, it's already interesting, but it's getting even more interesting. The plot thickens, okay? So Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh's dream, first of all, is that there's, uh, there's seven cows that come up out of the Nile. They're very good-looking cows, uh, healthy-looking cows. And then seven more come out, and they devour those cows. And then and, and it specifically says you can't tell once the, the ugly, scrawny cows eat the fat cows that anything changed. Like, whoa, that's weird. Okay. So he goes back, he wakes up, he's freaked out, goes back to sleep. And then he has another one where seven heads of grain come up, and they're really like great-looking grain. And then some scraggly grain that looks like it's been burnt, it says, by the east wind, uh, comes up and it, it like grows around and chokes it out. And he is freaked out by these dreams. And so he it says he calls all the magicians of Egypt, looks for everybody. Somebody come tell me what this means. Nobody's got an answer. And then the cupbearer kind of sheepishly is like, um, actually, there's something I forgot to say. There's this guy, tells him about Joseph. So Joseph gets brought up. Pharaoh tells him the dreams. He interprets the dreams. And uh, Joseph's interpretation is, okay, you got... Uh, you got seven years of plenty, and there's going to be seven years of famine. That's that's what. So here's what you need to do, man. You need to put somebody in charge of this thing, get storehouses built up. Uh, you need to store a bunch of food during the good years because there's bad years coming behind it. Uh, so find somebody, put them in charge that that can do that. And Pharaoh's like, "You're the man." So it says it takes off his signet ring, makes him uh, basically ruler over all of Egypt, and uh, puts him to this work. And so. Uh, he does that and does a great job at it, and then the famine comes. And 
we, we see um, Joseph's family in Canaan struggling, and it gets to the point where they're now going to have to go to Egypt to buy food. So um, Jacob sends brother, the brothers up to go buy food, uh, but he holds back Benjamin because he's had one more son with Rachel. He thinks Joseph's dead, but now he's got Benjamin, who's now his new favorite. Sends the rest of the boys to go buy food in Egypt. Well, they show up in Egypt, and, and who else do they run into? Uh, Joseph's kind of handles the selling of the grain to other folks, and so they, they start interacting with Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And uh, so he asks some questions, kind of finds out what's going on. His dad's still alive. He's got another brother. Uh, he accuses them of being spies, and, and, and Joseph's playing some head games here a little bit, but he's also trying to get information that he's looking for. And so uh, he, he sells them grain, uh, but he's, he makes one of the brothers stay, and he says, I want to see this younger brother. The, the way you're going to prove to me that you're not spies is that you're going to go back, get this younger brother, and bring him to me, and then I'll know you're not lying. And uh, they, they do not want to do that, but they don't have a choice. So one of the brothers stays back, and they head home. They actually don't come right back. Uh, if I remember right, I think it was Simeon that got left behind. It's just, you know, sorry, bro, you know, <laughs> don't know what to do, because... Uh, because Jacob was very, the dad, Israel, not hype on the idea of Benjamin going because he's not want to lose this other favorite son of his. And so uh, it ends up that they eat all the food they have and then they need to go back. But the brothers are like, listen, this guy in Egypt that's in charge told us do not come back unless we have our younger brother. So Jacob and Judah have this conversation and it ends up where Jacob kind of comes to the point where he's like, well, yeah, I mean, if I lose Benjamin, you may as well count me as dead, but I understand you have to take him. So they take him up with him, and uh, it's, they, they do the food exchange, and, and Joseph has them as his guests, and, and then he, he sends them on their way, but he hides his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And he lets them leave, uh, get out of, just outside the city. He sends his servants to go f- basically find that, right? So everyone takes their knapsacks down. They find the cups like, hey, why are you stealing from the guy that's been so good to you? So they drag them all back. And uh, basically what ends up happening is uh, they, you know, there's, a, there's an exchange. He, you know, he ultimately, as it all plays out, he ends up revealing who he is. And um, the brothers are afraid at first, but it ends up going well, and, and not only he sends for his father to come after he talks to Pharaoh, they, they bring them, the whole family, to Egypt, and that's how, that's how the people of God end up in Egypt, which had been prophesied that they would be there for 400 years, and then that's going to bring us into the Exodus, because Joseph and the Pharaohs that knew the story were gone, and uh, then the Hebrews became a threat. So we'll, we'll get to that as we move through this, but that... Uh, that kind of is the, the breakdown of how we ended up at Genesis 50. Where So if, if you weren't real familiar with that story, let's just read that again. Starting in verse 15, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his 
The brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see, here's here's what I want us to see. Joseph could have cried out, what is God doing, right? He could have cried that out from the pit. He could have cried that out from Potiphar's house or from the prison. And, And listen, there's no way he could have known exactly what God was doing when he was in those positions, when he was in the pit looking up at his brothers who had just thrown him in there, when he was in cuffs being hauled away by slave traders, when he was in Potiphar's house, there's no way he could see all that was happening. He couldn't see it. But it doesn't change the fact that God was doing what he always does. He was keeping his promises the whole time. At any time, up, up and into the point where Joseph realized what God was doing. Where Joseph saw the pieces come together. Where he saw his family come from another land that had he not been thrown in the pit, had he not been sold to Egypt, had he not been in Potiphar's house, had he not been lied on and falsely put in prison. You understand, had he not been sold into Egypt, he'd never been in Potiphar's house. Had he never been in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife would have never lied on him. If she'd never lied on him, he never would have went to prison. If he was never in prison, he'd have no reason to be in front of Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. Had he not been in front of the cupbearer and the baker, he never would have interpreted a dream where a cupbearer would have remembered his name and said something to Pharaoh about him when Pharaoh had a dream. So he wouldn't have interpreted Pharaoh's dream. So he wouldn't have had a signet ring put on his hand and become a ruler of Egypt. His family would have never been brought into the safety of Egypt and the whole bloodline through which, by the way, Jesus Christ himself comes from would not have been preserved. God was keeping his promises. That's what God was doing. Amen. Hallelujah. Boy, you sure seem excited about that. I hope you are. Man, I hope an amen, a grunt, or something just came out of your mouth on your couch. Man, say amen if you haven't said it yet. Now's a good time. Hallelujah. We're not done yet. There is something else I need to show you that is so beautiful. I'm going to take you, I kind of skimmed over this, and as I was telling Joseph's story, you probably saw, like, I glitched out a little bit. It's because I almost ruined this. I almost said this part before I wanted to, but now we're here, and I'm ready to show you. Okay, so if you want to, Real quick, turn to Genesis 44. Uh, I'm going to be in verse 19. I'm not going to give you a bunch of time. I'm just going to roll with it. But if you want to turn there, it's fine. Okay, this is specifically, this is the point where Joseph is saying to his brothers, you're going to have to leave Benjamin here because he stole the cup, which Joseph set that whole thing up. But here's, here's where we're at. Uh, one of the brothers steps up to try to convince Joseph that not to keep Benjamin because Jacob, his father, basically said, you come back here about Benjamin, you may as well dig me a grave because I'm, I'm done. I've already lost Joseph. If I lose Benjamin, count me as dead. He's, he's old and feeble at this time. One of the brothers steps up to Joseph, and here's what he says, trying to convince him to not keep Benjamin. My Lord asked his servants, saying, have you a father or a brother? So this is one of the brothers saying to Joseph, my Lord asked his servants. He's calling Joseph my Lord. There's a lot of A lot of respect going Joseph's way right now. And remember, the brothers don't know who Joseph is yet, okay? My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, 
we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now, his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Okay, Benjamin is the only other son of Rachel. Jacob loves him. That's what he's saying. Then you said to your servants, so then Joseph had asked them, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is not with us. Because if we go down that way, we we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, so he's... He's telling Joseph, who he doesn't know is Joseph. He just thinks he's an Egyptian official. He's calling Jacob his dad. He's saying, he's your servant too, right? So just trying to give tons of respect. There's a lot of butter on this, okay? He's trying to butter him up, do everything he can to convince him to not keep Benjamin. He said, you know, your, your servant, my father, said to us, said to the boys, the brothers, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me and said, surely he is torn in pieces. Talking about Joseph. And I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your, for your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Okay, so basically, this brother that stepped up to the plate to talk to Joseph is saying, Look, if we go back without Benjamin, my dad's going to die. And I put myself in surety, in pledge, that I would, that I, I would not come back without Benjamin. Okay? So here's, I know that was long. Here's why we're here. This brother that stepped up, he said, Now, therefore, please let your servant, talking about himself, remain instead of the lad, a slave to you, my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. Keep me and let Benjamin go. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? So what do we have here? We have one of these brothers, one of the same brothers who threw Joseph in the pit, you know, mind you, One of the brothers is stepping up to Joseph and saying, take me, take me instead. Let Benjamin go. Take me. You you know which brother this was? It was Judah. You know what tribe Jesus comes from? Ooh, come on now. That's right. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Isn't that right? Come on now. The story with Joseph, the fact that Judah in the midst of this thing steps up with this offer Take me instead of him. Take me instead of my brother. The fact that Joseph is thrown into a pit and, and is, does prison time for a crime he didn't commit, and all that price he pays is for what? For the saving of his family. By the way, we're the very ones that threw him in the pit to begin with. Come on now. This whole thing, it drips with redemptive beauty. And it points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This thing drips with redemption. The foreshadowing is so thick you can cut it with a knife. And all of it is pointing us to the greatest evidence we have 
This is great evidence. This story of Joseph and how this whole thing plays out, this is great for us to have written on our hearts as we are dealing with trials. We are dealing with the question of, are we going to trust God in the midst of difficulty when we can't see how he could... Do you understand? When he, when, what could Joseph have possibly known of saving all of his family when he was in the jail cell? He hadn't even heard the dream from Pharaoh yet. And that's where we find ourselves sometimes, in a vantage point where we li- it is not possible because of the limitations of time and space and the fact that we are just finite beings. We can't know all God is doing. And yet, he held on to what he knew about God in faith. And he kept on trucking. All of this, Judas stepping in for his brother Benjamin, Joseph taking the hit so that his family could be saved, It all is pointing us to the greatest evidence of God's power and goodness that we will ever have. And that, friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this principle that we're talking about, this principle we see of God working his good purposes in the midst of difficulty, we see that through the story of Joseph. We see it ongoing. We're going to look at more stories uh, through the the whole unfurling process Narrative of redemption in the scriptures in the coming weeks, but the pinnacle, the greatest example, like the the, the apex where all of them were leading was when God was working good in in the slaying of the perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who was born perfect, who lived perfect, who fed thousands of hungry, who healed the sick, who preached the good news of the kingdom, who had followers that had given up everything to follow him. And then watched him be abused and tortured and nailed to a cross and bleed and die and set him in a tomb. But God was working in all of that. And they couldn't have seen it. Looking through the little minuscule keyhole of their perspective, they couldn't have seen it. But friends, this principle was working itself out. And we now are on the backside of that. We now, in the midst of what we're going through right now, we can look back to the reality of God's mighty hand working through that whole gospel narrative, working in the life of Joseph and in the life of Moses and in the life of David and Esther and all the rest. God works good in every situation. He has a plan and he's got a purpose. And sometimes we need to be humble enough to say, I don't know what that is and that's okay because I've seen enough to know that it's good and to know that he is doing all that he's promised he would do, that he's going to be faithful. This time will be no different. Why would this time be any different than Joseph or Jesus? Friends, the greatest example we have of God's power and goodness is in the gospel. Why? Because it's really, man, it's important that Joseph ended up leader of Egypt so that uh, Abraham's family, the ones from whom Jesus would come, could survive. That's, that's, man, that's, there's a lot there. And it, there's, you see, a, you see the might of God's hand to work in all of that, taking into consideration the, the sinful choices of man and yet still weaving his will to, to a perfect conclusion. But what we see, the exertion of God's power and, and the, the expression of his goodness that we see in God himself taking the hit for sin. God himself in Christ, allowing himself to be tortured by his very own creation, to bleed and to die. The the goodness we see in the cross and then the power we see in three days later, Jesus rising up out of the grave. 
It's the best example we will have ever of this principle. And friends, we have, because we have God's word, we have that example to look at. And so what does this mean practically? Why are we talking about this? Because right now we're going through it. All of us together, mankind is going through it. And what are we going to decide about God in this time? What, what contemplations are we going to let run through our minds? Where are we going to land? Are we going to land in a place of faith and trust in God's goodness and power? Or are we going to live in the confusion and, and, and the fear that comes in not knowing if God is good or can be trusted or is powerful enough to do what he's promised? He is as good as he's promised and he is going to do absolutely everything he said. We can trust him. He's shown us enough to trust him. Praise God. Hallelujah. When we cannot see what God is doing, may we walk by faith and not by sight, trusting what we have already seen in Jesus and all the rest of the scriptures. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you for Genesis. I thank you for the story of Joseph. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you knew the great benefit having the book of Genesis would be to us so that we could see the flower of your redemption unfurl through creation and the fall and the flood and Babel and, and your dealings with Abraham and, and the story of Joseph. God, we see your goodness and your might. We see that you're never taken off guard. We see that you're in control at all times and that you can be trusted, that you are working. Thank you for being so good and thank you for being so powerful and thank you for being so interested in loving us and doing for us what is good. God, please help us. Help us put our eyes where they need to be. Help us trust the goodness and the power that we see throughout all of your scriptures. There's so much more to say about you than that you're good and powerful, but God, that's, that's what it comes down to. That's where, that's where the doubt tends to creep in. Sometimes, Lord, we are tempted to wonder if you're really as good as people say you are. We're tempted to wonder if you're really as powerful. But God, if, if you are, if you are that good and you are that powerful, then there is no reason for us to fear. There is no reason for us to have anxiety. Thank you that because of your goodness and power that we can, we can walk in joy, we can walk in peace and not in fear. Thank you that we don't have to be overcome by whatever it is, that whatever the assault of the day is, whatever the new trial is that's coming. And Lord, mankind together is dealing with big things right now, but that hasn't stopped. And in some cases, it's made even more difficult some of the things we're dealing with on individual levels. And I'm just asking, Lord, that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to fix our eyes on who you are, the truth of your gospel, what it says about you, that we would let our hearts be filled with your story of redemption and see this principle play out over and over again. God, I don't want to come to you with a fist shaking, accusing you, making accusations about your character, but I do want to come. I do want to ask the question, what are you doing with anxious anticipation that the answer is beautiful? 
And the answer is something that I should look forward to finding out. But being okay with the reality that I may not know right now. Thank you, God, that I can trust you to let me know what I need to know, what's going to be good for me to know, and to leave me in the dark on the rest. (laughs) You are God and I am not. Thank you so much that Joseph said to his brothers, am I in the place of God? Lord, help us. Please grab a hold of that. Help us to pray that. Help us to really think through some of what we say and some of what we, where we let our contemplations go. Because sometimes, God, we do. We, we act like we're in your place. We're not. You're God and we're not. And we're real, real thankful that's true. We thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for teaching us and guiding us, leading us, shaping us, making us more like you. You're worthy of our trust and worship, oh God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.com. Dot org.